Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Hello and welcome to episode 36. It is Thursday, 20 July 2023. I'm Sarah and I am your host. And I've just realized that these episode intros have slowly become somewhat of a confessional, sort of like in a reality show. And that got me thinking, if they ever do a Real Housewives of Brisbane, I'd totally be up for being Brisbane's answer to Gina Liano. (laughs) Just putting that out there. And whilst I wait for that to manifest, here's the top three things that I flipped a table over this week. Number one, I came home to find my 18 month old Labradoodle, who the vet thinks has attention deficit hound disorder, chewing on one of my favorite Whitner wedge mules, which for anyone who appreciates how hard it is to find a good mule will understand as being a particularly confronting sight. So naturally, I locked myself in the laundry and refused to come out until my husband agreed we would buy a new one. Dog, that is. The shoes are obviously irreplaceable. I was rooting for you! We were all rooting for you! How dare you! Number two. I discovered Guzman and Gomez no longer does barramundi burritos, and apparently they haven't had them on the menu for at least a year. I mean, what is a committed pescatarian who eats chicken and also a cheeseburger every now and then to do for lunch when she's out and about? Yes, they do have chicken, but I really felt like fish. Is this chicken what I have or is this fish? I know it's tuna, but it it says chicken by the sea. Number three. I got called an influencer this week, which is obviously troubling on a few levels. And now that I've somewhat ironically proven I have no business being in a reality show, what's in the briefcase this week? I caught up with the delightful Dr. John Chesterman, public advocate of Queensland, and we chatted all about his work in driving social change for adults with impaired decision-making abilities, including the big issues of elder abuse and what to do if you suspect someone is at risk, restrictive practices, NDIS, and the reforms currently and soon to be underway. Season 3 of The Briefcase is brought to you by our friends at the University of Queensland Law School. Check the show notes for a master's custom built for you. So, public advocate Chesterman? Never been called that before, but... uh, Is that appropriate? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I could be. Not appropriate? Right in my wheelhouse. (laughs) So I thought it would be cool to sit down and chat with you today to talk about what is the public advocate? Sure, okay. Well, it's a statutory office and I'm a systemic advocate for the rights of adults with impaired decision-making ability. So oftentimes that will involve people who may be in the guardianship jurisdiction, subject to guardianship orders or potentially so, but there's also many people with significant mental ill health, can be dementia, can be intellectual disability, acquired brain injury, a range of impairments that can affect decision-making ability. But the uh, statute under which my office operates is the guardianship legislation, and it talks about, in fact, specifically, adults with impaired capacity for a matter. That's that's my um, jurisdiction. So what I do as a systemic advocate is not take on individual matters, but look at matters across the board where I think improvements could be made to 
the recognition and promotion of the rights of adults in that cohort of people. Mm. So what I do basically is seek some degree of social change by writing reports to government for their consideration, which will typically also involve consultation with people usually throughout Queensland on the topics that I'm looking into. Mm. One of the most significant reports I've done in my nearly two years in the role comes under the topic of adult safeguarding. What's that? So this is a topic that really comes out of the elder abuse area and in a nutshell what I'm looking at there is to say if you see an adult who is at risk, I, I use the terminology at risk rather than say they necessarily have a disability because some people with disability will be at risk but not all people with disability are at risk. Likewise, not everyone who is at risk has a disability. Mm. So anyway, if you see someone who is at risk and obviously not faring well and there's no obvious crime and no obvious medical emergency, who do you contact? Ghostbusters. Indeed. And in the absence of a fictional Fictional? Superhero crew. Are you telling me they're not real? Not to my knowledge. All I can do is speak from my knowledge. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) So, who do you contact? There's there's no obvious agency. What has happened is we've tended to utilise the adult guardianship system as a default mechanism. But that system was only ever supposed to be used in exceptional circumstances. It's been used more and more Mm -hmm. and we use it too much. So my report, which uh, the second volume of which was tabled by the Attorney General, Queensland Attorney General in December last year, calls for the appointment of an adult safeguarding commissioner. This is something that New South Wales made a comparable appointment back in 2019, and it's an area where the Australian Law Reform Commission made some recommendations in its elder abuse report back in 2017. Mm-hmm. So it recommended that we identify and empower at state and territory level an adult safeguarding agency and it left it to states and territories to work out who should play that role. Mm-hmm. But that's the scenario I'm talking about where people are at risk in the general community, others are concerned about them, but who do they contact? So it seems like this dovetails quite a bit with elder abuse then? Very much so. And so I was referring to the Australian Law Reform Commission, which has made recommendations about adult safeguarding agencies. That was all in the context of an inquiry into elder abuse. Yes. So that sprang out of their elder abuse inquiry. And elder abuse is a typical scenario that I'm addressing. So mm. you have, for instance, a neighbour, let's imagine four doors down, who is an older woman. We see her younger, a neighbour sees her younger adult son appearing and seeming to be suddenly flush with money. The neighbour is seeing less and less of the older woman when the, when the adult son is there. Shouts can be heard from inside the house. What do you do in that scenario? Mm-hmm. Yes, we can contact police, but and police will, will knock on the door and inquire, but in the absence of you know obvious criminality, they're very restrained in what they can do. Mm-hmm. What do we do in that situation? That's, that's what, what do we do? It really depends on the length of relationship with the person. So if you have a long-standing relationship, you will notice changes in their behaviour. If you don't, ask to see the person. It's not seeing others around them. That can be important as well, but very important to see the person about whom there are concerns. Speak to them, ask them if there's anything they need. And in the absence of a um, standalone agency, we contact emergency services, so police, ambulance, 
and or use the guardianship, adult guardianship system. And, and in a general sense, what I'd say to lawyers, and lawyers are in a very good situation often to pick things up, will be say something to someone. I know that's a general comment, but talk to the person, obviously, but talk to your colleagues if you have a concern and just say, look, I'm a bit concerned about this situation. Oftentimes, the uh, elder abuse scenarios can be complex. We know that, for instance, people who are victims of elder abuse will be reluctant sometimes to say anything because whilst they don't want to experience the abuse, they don't want to sever their relationship with often their adult child, and so they may be reluctant to say things. And that's one of the particular challenges in this area, is how do we often will have what you might call an unwilling victim who certainly wants the abuse to stop, but equally fears reporting it because of what might happen to their relationship and, and that their adult child may turn against them more than they currently are. So there are these concerns, but what I'd say to lawyers is do something, mm. don't, don't ignore it. Mm. What are the support networks in place currently for people who want to raise the alarm? Where, where there is real criminality, obvious criminality, and so there's a lot of grey area where there may be criminality, we're not sure, but where there's obvious criminality, someone's taking money out of their parents' account or something, then absolutely report to police and police will act. In the absence of that, what I'm proposing, in addition to the Office of an Adult Safeguarding Commission, I'm also proposing the establishment of adult safeguarding networks throughout the state. Uh, and the idea being there that you have often geographically based networks which will do everything, including assembling service providers but also advocacy agencies, people with lived experience as well, and getting them to talk about people within their own communities about whom there might be concerns and to share their knowledge. So that's a reform I would like to see. It does kind of happen informally in some places and on the Gold Coast there's a, a good network of um, elder abuse agencies. The benefit of that is that oftentimes elder abuse scenarios can be very complex and it can be tricky to work out just what ought to happen in this scenario and sharing thoughts is a really good way forward. Mm -hmm. I conducted some round tables as part of the consultation for the adult safeguarding work my office did and it surprised me how well this worked. So I'd present to these round tables which are held throughout the state hypothetical scenarios, so drawn from real life but, but hypothetical so no one no agency would be defensive about what they did or didn't do. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, hypotheticals. And getting people to talk about uh, what might happen here. And what was interesting, so we had you know, ambulance, police, advocacy agencies, community legal centres, Royal Flying Doctor, we had a whole range of organisations represented who, if you ask them in an abstract sense, what we need to do to improve our prevention and response to elder abuse, they'll come up with different ideas. But give them a scenario what was fascinating was the extent to which they agreed on talking about what might happen here. Mm -hmm. uh, people would tend to agree because, you know, suddenly they're trying to assist this person rather than talking from principles or yes. whatever. And so it was really that that motivated the uh, recommendation around the establishment of networks because this is a way to do that in geographical regions. Sure. So when would a lawyer be in contact with you? Sure. So whenever a lawyer identifies a systemic problem mm -hmm. 
that confronts Queensland adults with impaired decision-making ability. I'd be interested to hear from them, and, and I do. I have quite a bit of involvement with a range of uh, community legal centres and advocacy agencies mm. uh, from whom I've learned a lot and whose uh, you know, camaraderie uh, I appreciate. So you said that it predominantly operates in the guardianship jurisdiction. So what do you need to prove to be successful in a guardianship application? Look, in, in short, in a nutshell, you have to show that a person has impaired decision-making capacity for a relevant matter and is in need of a decision-maker. Right. And if that person is resistant, for example, in either the elder community or people who may not accept that they have an impaired decision-making ability, what do you do then? It's a matter for QCAT and evidence will be brought to the tribunal about the, the current need. QCAT exercises what, what we call, a, call an inquisitorial jurisdiction here, so less adversarial, more inquisitorial about, about the person. Mm -hmm. But it's up to the tribunal member or members to make the call as to whether they think the criteria for an appointment are met and yeah. then make the order. And if the person is um, resistant, it is still a legal process by which their decision-making authority is removed from them. Right. You, there, there can be an issue in terms of compliance with a guardianship order where, for instance, a person is uh, a decision is made for a person to reside at a particular place from which they keep leaving. There can be an issue of how to enforce that order mm -hmm. if they're not in a, um, a setting you know, where they're prohibited from leaving. Yes. Uh, so there can be a, a, that issue about compliance. But in the financial realm, for instance, well, the person will lose control of their financial decision-making through that tribunal process. So it's basically just a process of putting as much evidence as you possibly can before the tribunal and... That's right. Yeah. What's interesting too, though, is that, and people sometimes surprised when I say this, but the guardianship agencies, so I'm here I'm thinking about um, QCAT, the public guardian, public trustee, and this is the case throughout the country, everyone tends to agree that we make too much use of the guardianship system and it would be preferable for us to make less use of the guardianship system. There are interesting dynamics at play here because on the one hand we have the human rights trajectory which is increasingly saying people should be supported to make their own decisions and not have others step in and make decisions for them. Mm -hmm. So there's that trajectory which would suggest we need fewer orders. Mm -hmm. On the other side, we have a service system that is increasingly consumer choice. So I'm thinking about, for instance, the NDIS. Mm -hmm. Also, aged care is increasingly consumer choice. We're seeing more and more services provided to people in their home settings under their choice or guided by their choice. That leads to more decisions being made and the need for a decision maker, so that can drive up guardianship appointments. Mm -hmm. So we have these competing tensions at play here which are affecting guardianship numbers. But as I say, I've not heard of a guardianship agency that would like to see more use made of the guardianship system. Most, In fact, everyone wants to see less use made of the system. So that means a whole lot of things, including encouraging people to think about their own situation and who they would like to assist them to make decisions should they ever lose the ability to make their own decisions. There, there was an issue recently, I think, or maybe it's ongoing, around is it restrictive practices? Yes. Is that something that you're dealing with 
here in this role and what is restrictive practices? They're, they're mechanisms used by which the behaviour of a person is constrained in some way. So restrictive practice can be physical, can be uh, environmental, restricting a person's access to cupboards in a house, can be a locked door, can be chemical, so a pharmaceutical that has got the sole purpose of modifying a person's behaviour, it's not therapeutic, that's what a restrictive practice is. Yeah, right. So restrictive practices have been a focus of my work. There are two particular spheres in which I've been involved. So we have restrictive practices legislation in place here in Queensland in relation to disability services. Mm -hmm. That's currently being reviewed, which I, I think is good. Mm -hmm. We also have federal aged care regulation in relation to restrictive practices in aged care. Right. Now, both of those systems, the state disability one and the federal aged care one, utilise what I identify as a consent model. Mm -hmm. So where the person who is subject to a restrictive practice, this has to be consented to by someone on their behalf. So in the disability area, we can have a guardian for um, restrictive practices. In the aged care field, there's some complexity, but you can now have a guardian appointed to consent on your behalf to restrictive practices in, the age, in an aged care setting. Right. That paradigm, in my view, is wrong. We shouldn't have a consent paradigm here. And the reason for that is, we talk about consent as actually substitute consent, so someone consenting on your behalf. But in the aged care field, for instance, the regulations talk about the person consenting to their own restrictive practice, which when you think about it, conjures up very odd scenarios mm. of, for instance, a person being confined to their room mm. on the basis that they'd previously agreed to be confined to their room even when they're trying to leave their room. That just is very odd. Mm. So really what we're talking about is substitute consent, so the consent of somebody else. Mm. I think that's very problematic. For a range of reasons, we are increasingly requiring substitute decision makers to make decisions that the person themselves would have made. So in this scenario, you've got to do some mental gymnastics to say, well, I should only consent to this if I think the person themselves would have consented to their own restrictive practice. So it's just all very odd. <gasps> I've been calling for a different model of authorisation, which I have used the term senior practitioner authorisation model, which is a model whereby you have a, an official who could be appointed at state, territory level, could be federal, who is responsible for the oversight of restrictive practice use and who would basically accredit local authorisers on certain criteria who could only give the okay to the use of restrictive practice where it's contained in a behaviour support plan that identifies less restrictive ways of dealing with the behaviour that is giving rise to the need for restrictive practice. So that, that's an area which I'm quite passionate about where I think we're going down the wrong the wrong way. Interestingly, the, the state disability restrictive practice regime is currently being reviewed, at the, and, and I'm very hopeful that we will move down a senior practitioner authorisation model. Yeah, right. When do they become necessary in the two realms that you were talking about? The euphemism that's used for situations where restrictive practices come into play are behaviours of concern. Right. And I say that that is a euphemism because there are. A variety of ways and indeed th there's expertise on how to 
deal with situations where a person's actions may be causing difficulty for a service provider and or other yes. residents. Yes. Um, so behaviours of concern is, has become a bit of a euphemism to justify Anything? their <laughs> yeah, that's right, incursive practices that restrain the person from acting in the way that they're acting. But the point I make is there is expertise here that ought to be utilised. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is, but in busy settings it's hard to identify good practice. Mm. There, there is some very good practice, don't get me wrong, in some aged care facilities and in some disability services, but there's also poor practice as well. And the um, NDIS, Quality and Safeguards Commission, reported, for instance, uh, a few years back about, in a financial year, there'd been one million unauthorised uses of restrictive practices. So it, it is a, a field where people's human rights can be very easily trodden because typically the people concerned will not be able to voice their situation. Oh, that's just terrifying, isn't it? It is. And I'm imagining that number is probably on the conservative side, given a lot of these practices happen behind closed doors. They do, that's right. So if you as a practitioner or just as a human see this or, or suspect that this is going on, who do you notify in that event? Is that a criminal act? It can be. Like if someone's being in a suburban home being locked in their room, mm -hmm. I'd call the police. That's yeah. false imprisonment, isn't it? Indeed. And that's seclusion is also, you know, a form mm. of restrictive practice, mm. but that's right. So at that level, yes, I'd call the police. If a for instance, a disability service provider funded by the NDIS were doing something there's some concern, maybe not a lot of information, but some concern, mm. the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission is the place to raise concerns. I mean, with the service provider too, I'd go yes. straight to the service provider, but in the absence of getting any satisfactory response, the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission, aged care space, again, go to the provider, but there we have the regulator, which national, again, mm. it's the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission. Right. What's the most surprising thing you've discovered or learned in your time in this role? Look, I would say the collegial response I've received from service providers, advocacy agencies, lawyers in this jurisdiction on moving here, I found there, there are some excellent services that operate here and people are very humble and generous with providing their assistance. That's actually the most surprising thing. Because yeah. I came from Melbourne in, uh, I was Deputy Public Advocate in Victoria, which prides itself on, you know, the, uh, the vibrancy of its NGO sector and the collegiality, and I found it more so up here. True. True. So if this gets played to Melbourne, sorry. <laughs> well, it goes global, John. It goes I'm sure global. it does. I'm sure it does. It's out there. There you have it. <laughs> Any recent developments in this space that have really impacted what you're doing? One that's coming is the Disability Royal Commission. So its final report is due on the 29th of September this year. Mm -hmm. That's going to have a significant impact on, I think, the guardianship jurisdiction and other areas affecting, well, broadly, people with disability okay. is in their remit. So that will be very significant. We've also got a review currently underway of the NDIS. Okay. Um, that's due in October. That will have a significant impact as well. What do you think is going to come out of those two reviews, if anything? Good things, but I'm not sure exactly what. So, you know, I've made suggestions, many suggestions to both. In the NDIS space, I'd like to see more alignment between the role of... There's a, a category of decision-making 
supporter slash substitute decision maker called an NDIS nominee. I'd like greater alignment between that role and guardianship. The NDIS was always pitched as being about three tiers, the Australian population as a whole, then people with disability, then NDIS participants. The tier two, which is people with disability, hasn't really worked with the NDIS, I think everyone agrees. So this is about more mainstream accessibility for people with disability who may not be NDIS participants. I'd like to see reforms in that space as well. Mm. There, there are a couple of areas. NDIS Review is very alive to this. Yeah, and right. it's been conducted, I hasten to add, by um, one of the chairs, one of the co-chairs is Bruce Bonahady, who's the architect of the scheme, so I have great confidence in what they're going to do. Okay. So, they end all of these interviews with a would you rather question. That's a Seinfeld-esque touch. Yes. John, would you rather always be 10 minutes late or always be 20 minutes early? No, 20 minutes early, I'm sorry. And my children, I've got three adult children, one of whom's a lawyer. I'm so sorry. We famously uh, turned up to an airport many, many hours early and they haven't let me forget it. <laughs> Why? Why always early? That's a question that one has to look deep inside to, to answer. I actually don't know why it sets me off, but uh, I, when I chair meetings, I always finish on time or early, so I'm a bit, bit I think, a bit of a control freak, perhaps. <laughs> I think that's what it is. I'm glad I know that now and not <laughs> that at the time that I arrived late to <laughs> this interview. <laughs> oh, uh, you did bring a coffee. I, I did. That's different. And a croissant, which you have oh. rejected. <laughs> I need that. I Sorry, high cholesterol. Oh, all right, well, look, it, I'll only forgive it because that means I get to eat it. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, John, for your time. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a delight. Oh. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. It's time to close her up. See you next time. I'm Sarah Crowell, and this is The Briefcase.